Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Joseph Stiglitz. He's a Nobel Prize winner, former senior economic advisor to President Clinton, former chief economist for the World Bank, and very much else besides. And his new book is called People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. Welcome, Professor Stiglitz. Nice to be here. Now, can I start? Your The basic thesis of your book, as I understand it, is that particularly in the American economy, things are very, very wrong. Can you explain just how wrong and why? Because I know that a lot of President Trump, who you're not keen on, his defenders will say, well, look, you know, we've got a lot of growth. We've got the FTSE bouncing around very happily. You know, everything in the garden's rosy. Why why do you disagree with that position? Well, let me first take uh, the longer term view and then come in to focus more narrowly on, on President Trump's assertions. Over the longer term, what has been happening in the United States uh, really has been dismal. At the bottom, real wages, that is wages adjusted for inflation, are roughly at the same level that they were 60 years ago. If you look at one of the parts of our society that are most discontent, males, the median income of a full-time male worker, and the full-time workers are the lucky ones, is the same as it was roughly 42 years ago. Life expectancy in the United States is in decline. And this in the country where there's more research going on in extending life expectancy than anywhere else in the world. But the fact is that there's been an epidemic of what we is called deaths of despair, people who are uh, suffering from drug overdose, alcoholism, suicide. This is not, these are not signs of a healthy economy. Now, there are some particular numbers that, you know, quite frankly, are good. Uh, the unemployment rate is as low as it's been in a very long time. But one of the reasons the unemployment rate is so low is a lot of people have given up looking for a job. The labor force participation rate in the United States is also low. So the, you can be happy that those who are still, there aren't many people looking for a job that can't find one, but you should be concerned that so many people have given up looking for a job or have such poor health that they're unable to work. And it's not because something about America makes it an unhealthy place to live. It's because the way our economic and social system works leaves a, a lot of people unable to be a productive members of society. If you look more deeply at the question, is the current growth in the United States sustainable? The question is clearly not. During uh, 2018, the American economy had the benefit of what widely called a sugar high. We had an enormous increase in our fiscal deficit as a result of a big tax break for corporations, for the billionaires. We had an increase in expenditure, this in a country that already had a 3% deficit to GDP ratio. So we are having today is the first trillion dollar deficit year. 
it is clear that growth of the level that we had last year with around 3% is slowing down markedly. Most estimates are that probably will be around 2% plus or minus. The evidence is that, say, within less than a decade, our growth, our, the level of GDP will be a little different from what it would have been, what we would have projected before Trump arrived. In fact, in terms of the income of Americans, they'll probably be a little lower because of all the deficits, we'll be borrowing more money from abroad and have to send more money abroad. So the bottom line is the United States economy is not healthy. Once you raise the issue of sustainability, you cannot but think about the looming crisis in climate. The, the fact is that we are not preparing ourselves for climate change and we're not doing what we should be doing to reduce carbon emissions. If I understand you rightly, and I'm not an economist, you diagnose a structural problem in the US economy, which where you divide, you, you distinguish between two types of growth or profit, one of which you call wealth creation, and the other one of which you describe as exploitation, or in the economic term of art, rent-seeking. Can you explain how you draw that divide and what you mean by it for those of us not blessed with economics 101. Sure. There are two ways in which people can get wealthy. One of them is they can make the size of the economic pie bigger and as a reward for that contribution turn out to become wealthier people. The other way is to try to seize a larger fraction of the economic pie, and in that process of trying to seize a larger fraction of the pie, actually often make the size of the pie smaller. And in various ways, uh, some people make most of their money by one, some by another, and some are a mixture. When we think about the person who discovered the basis of, of all our understanding of modern medicine, if we think about the people who discovered the laser or the transistor or the, all the other major innovations which have transformed our lives, those are the wealth creators. Interestingly, very few of them wound up to be among the wealthiest people of our society. At the other extreme, the exploitation, the wealth grabbers, uh, lots of those come to mind. Uh, Trump himself is uh, a, a archetypal example of this. Trump University, which took money from the unwary, didn't provide them anything of value. He was sued over and over again. You know, it was based on deception. Our banks made billions of dollars in result of predatory lending, abusive credit card practices, market manipulation, a host of, of bad practices, that's an co- example of exploitation. One aspect of exploitation I talk a lot about in the book is the exploitation that comes as a result of being a monopolist or having large degrees of market power. And uh, that is increasingly uh, the case in especially in America, in industry after industry. 
and the the magnitude of this uh, market power is particularly acute in some of the high tech industries where uh, the the power of Facebook, of Google, of Amazon uh, is is just obvious. You actually say at one point, which was slightly striking to me, of Facebook. You said it might be a natural monopoly, and your line is: you say maybe we need tighter public oversight or even ownership which suggests you you know you think there's a case for nationalizing facebook and i mean how would you with something that big and something that international provide that sort of regulatory structure or or even the idea of you know how do you nationalize an international company well before i said that i what i did point out is that there are lots of things that we can do before we go to uh to those kinds of measures so for, for instance uh, there was no reason that uh, to have allowed Facebook to acquire Instagram and some of the other services that they acquired. That just allowed Facebook to get more and more market dominance, and it would be easy to break to break out some of the uh, Instagram and some of the other companies out of Facebook. So those would be the first kinds of measures I would take. Uh, the second set of measures that I would take are measures to try to curb some of its abusive practices uh, with respect to privacy, political manipulation. Germany is t- taking some measures. They have said that because of the dominance, the market dominance that Facebook has, that it should be restricted in some of the ways that they uh, have engaged in the invasion of privacy. So those are a second set of measures, of regulatory measures, that I would have taken. And then what I said at the end is, at this juncture, I'm not confident that those two sets of measures will suffice. I leave it open as as a question. And uh, as we found in some other areas, if the standard measures don't work, we, we have to go further. This is really important. I mean, it, it, social media is shaping the nature of our society. It, it's having uh, so many effects that we clearly didn't anticipate a decade ago. And precisely because this is such an evolve, fast-evolving area, I didn't want to specify precisely what we would do. But to uh, respond to some of the specifics of your question, much of what goes on in each of the areas of social media occur within a country. And one can basically treat the various countries as separate linked, uh, obviously, because there are many of us have connections across uh, boundaries, but most of the activities occur within the boundaries. And if one did that, uh, one would put stronger pressure for uh, Facebook to respond within each country to the problems that it's creating within those countries. Now Facebook, as an American company, can shrug its shoulders about what happens in Myanmar and uh, in Burma and with the Rohingya, uh, pretending that, well, that's off in some distant uh, country. But it's not true. And there needs to be uh, a much more focus on the way Facebook and other social media are affecting uh, the lives of each country. Absolutely. Now, as as will be clear from our conversation so far, you know, you're you're somebody who's in favour of the idea that you know we need 
a stronger role for government, a larger role for regulation in civic society and for the provision of public goods, more taxation. And you're very alive in your book to the interplay between economics and politics. I was just wondering, you know, you're not here making a case for what often gets called with great stigma in the States, you know, outright socialism. You know, you're talking in favour of a sort of capitalism working properly and markets working freely. But why is it that in your native country in the States, there is so much resistance to this idea? I mean, this sort of, you know, it's very easy to take progressives and say, that's a socialist position, you know, our country's spirit is against, you know, essentially that that what you sometimes call neoliberalism is just, is in the fibre of American politics and American public discourse. Yeah, it's a good question. What I wanted to do is capture the moment today where for most people, it's very clear that neoliberalism has failed. Uh, you might say in the United States, neoliberalism began not with those words, with the Reagan revolution, uh, supply-side economics. Now we've had four, four decades, 40 years of this neoliberal experiment. And uh, what we've seen is that growth has slowed and the, what benefits of the limited growth that have occurred have gone overwhelmingly to the top 1%. So that form of market economy has failed. No, no one can say an economy that basically has left income to the bottom 90% stagnant is a successful economy. So that provides us the opportunity to begin a discussion of where do we go from here. Now the word I like is progressive capitalism. I put it in the, in the subtitle of, of my book to emphasize that I believe markets are going to be at the core of the economy, but it has to be a, a, a tempered capitalism. It has to be a, a capitalism that is redirected to serving the interests of society and making sure that the benefits of growth are uh, more widely shared than they've been in the past. I actually believe that kind of capitalism can actually succeed in getting more rapid growth and doubly benefiting ordinary citizens. The, there is a battle in the United States. We have to uh, be clear about that. Particularly uh, large numbers of, of Republicans are fighting, you might say, a rear guard action to maintain privilege, uh, to maintain the high levels of inequality that they've uh, been able to garner for themselves. And uh, they're willing to engage in whatever tricks of uh, demagogues that they that that work, and so under Trump, uh, they blame the maladies that America faces on immigrants, on bad trade agreements. Even though though the trade agreements were designed by American corporations for American corporations, uh, they they showed no compunction. And in blaming uh, trade agreements for, that they design for the problems that American workers face. Well, part of the tricks of demagogues is to try to evoke a distant past, uh, the fear of communism, which was always stronger in the United States than it was in Europe. And so uh, even though the Cold War has been over now for 30 years, uh, they're trying to evoke, uh, do another reg scare. And so Trump 
is trying to say that they're the that uh, the Democrats are bringing Maduro and Venezuela uh, back to America. And, you know that's actually you know absolutely absurd. No one is proposing the traditional socialist agenda of the ownership of the basic means of production. No one is talking about nationalizing railroads or coal mines. Uh, no one is talking about that kind of agenda. Uh, what uh, the Democrats are saying, uh, we have to make our economy work for the majority of American citizens. And things that they're talking about are taken as basic rights in many other countries, including many countries in Europe. Uh, we're talking, they're talking about uh, health care for all, access to university education for all of those who are qualified, a secure retirement, uh, uh, jobs with decent pay, mortgages, you know, uh, all, all these things that are sort of the basic prerequisites of a middle-class life a middle-class life that is increasingly out of reach for a majority of Americans, even though 70 years ago we talked about America becoming the first middle-class society in the world. Well, this is, I mean, something that I, I struggle to understand from the side of the Atlantic. You know, those things you describe sound like attractive things. And as you write towards the end of your book, you say, you know, the conservative coalition is very divided and self-contradictory you know you've got the sort of one percent neoliberal free market red and tooth and claw people allied with the poorest you know whose interests are in direct contradiction and as you say progressives are a kind of complementary coalition of of interests there aren't there isn't that kind of schism in in what they need so why is it that progressives are finding it so hard why is it such a tricky sell well, I, I don't think it is. We'll, we'll, we'll see as the election goes forward. Obviously, uh, different people think that, that they can do a better job either in defeating Trump or leading the country. And there are some divisions, uh, both in, you know, the historical division, both parties, about whether you focus on energizing your base or leaning towards the middle to try to get those who are more skeptical. So there are different uh, electoral philosophies. Uh, there are different differences in economic philosophy having to do with the speed of reform. You know, do we, do we uh, do things step by step and eventually get to where we want to go? Or are we at a moment where we need a more radical departure? I happen to believe very strongly that uh, we are in a moment where we do do need uh, a more radical departure, that a little bit more education, uh, you know, uh, good thing is not going to be suffice to address the problems that we have. Uh, It's not tweaking things here a little bit or tweaking things there. We've been doing that for the last 30 years. That hasn't worked. So I think we are in a moment where there's a broad consensus of uh, of, uh, that a more radical action is taken. And I think it would have an advantage of energizing uh, the, you might say, the, the, the base. One of the striking things about America and why I think it's a good electoral strategy uh, for the Democrats is that young people, for instance, are two to one uh, on the more progressive side. 
but unfortunately, young people don't vote as they didn't. Uh, as the same thing happened in and in, in uh, happens in other countries, but uh, in America, uh, voter turnout is is much lower. If we can only get uh, young pe- people whose future depends so much on what happens in the next uh, election, if we can only get them to turn out and to vote what they in a way that reflects what they really want. Uh, I feel very confident the Democrats will be able to win. The final point that I emphasize in my book is uh, precisely what you noted, that while different Democrats have, you might say, different priorities, some are focusing on education, some on environment, some on, on health, all of these are really complementary. If we're going to have a society, an economy that functions, we're going to have to deal with the problems of healthcare, with education, with the problems of the environment. And uh, it's understandable that different people bring different passions to different parts of this agenda. But in the end, we're going to have to do all of these things. Can I ask, I mean, as you said, you know, certain policies have failed. and When you were working with Clinton, you were deeply involved, as I understand it, in the crafting of his kind of third way that came to be called policies, you know, of, of trying to use government and markets together. Have your ideas then changed substantially now? I mean, obviously, you know, we're in a new media age. I mean, what do you think you got right there and what do you think you got wrong? I mean... Well, we had a lot of debates. Let me put it back in historical context. The uh, Berlin Wall had fallen. Uh, it was clear that communism had failed. And so... One of the uh, economic models, the, the state-dominant model, had really failed. But I had looked around and, and really, historically, we knew that unfettered markets had also failed. Uh, we had the Great Depression, we had the SNL crisis, we had the problems, uh, a multitude of problems that originated under the Reagan administration. And so between uh, those two, uh, there had to be a third way. And that was what I was trying to craft of, of getting the right balance between government and the market. Now, we had within the administration a lot of tough fights. For instance, uh, there were people like Bob Rubin and Larry Summers that advocated financial market liberalization. I was much more concerned. Uh, I was worried about the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. I was worried about leaving derivatives uh, unregulated. Unfortunately, that was a battle that when I uh, when I left the administration uh, in 1997, uh, after that point, all this deregulation uh, was pushed forward by the Clinton administration. And I think we've learned about the dangers of that. Another issue that, you know, we, the, the levels of inequality were just beginning to rise. Uh, Bob Reich and I were extraordinarily concerned about it. And yet Clinton, at that particular moment, was trying to uh, engage uh, a broader coalition. He called it triangulation and proposed a reduction in capital gains tax. Uh, my view is that that would just exacerbate the inequality, and that is a fact what happened. 
that was a mistake, uh, that reduction of the capital gains tax rate. And one of the things I advocate in the book is, is uh, making sure that all uh, capital income is taxed at least as high as uh, that uh, of workers. I think overall what we've learned is that the dangers of unfettered markets or even mildly regulated markets are much worse than we anticipated. And that's, we saw that most critically in the 2008 crisis, but we're also seeing it in uh, the political fallout of 2016, because at the core of that were uh, those in the deindustrialized parts of the United States. Uh, the markets did not restructure our economy, these people were left uh, to fend for themselves, and uh, what happened was their incomes plummeted uh, and despair grew. And so um, I think f from my current perspective, and one of the things I emphasize in the book, is we need more active labor market policies, more active industrial policies, we need place-based policies to try to resuscitate those places that seem to be going through uh, the kind of enormous stress that have occurred repeatedly in the last uh, 40 years. Yeah, a, a line in the book that's, I mean, it's dropped in almost as a parenthesis, but it's a bit of a marmalade dropper. As you say, the we know now why the invisible hand can't be seen, because it's not there. <laughs> that's a very categorical dismissal of one of the fundamental kind of principles of classical economics. I mean... Do you think it is that categorical? You can be that categorical about it? Yes, I can. And that's really based on some of my earlier theoretical work. Uh, you know, uh, when Adam Smith put forward the idea of the invisible hand, it had an enormous amount of resonance. But there are two remarkable things. Uh, it was never proven. Uh, and he himself cast a lot of doubt about it because he talked about uh, you know businessmen never getting together even for merriment without conspiring against the interest of the public uh, he talked about businessmen working together to suppress, suppress wages so he himself was not a believer in the visible hand he was putting it forward as an idea that there was this tendency uh, that markets have a power but uh, it doesn't often work out uh, in, in the uh, happy way that uh, the visible hand theorem uh, idea uh, suggested. Well, in the 150 years after Adam Smith uh, put forward that idea, uh, economists worked very hard to understand the conditions under which uh, his hypothesis that markets lead to the well-being of society, as if by an invisible hand. And it turned out uh, that those conditions were very, very restrictive. And this is work done by Kenneth Arrow at Stanford, Gerard Jabrew uh, at Berkeley, and uh, myself uh, with Bruce Greenwald at Columbia. And all of these uh, you know, got Nobel Prizes for their work. And basically what this body of work has shown is that the conditions under which the market 
leagues as if by an invisible hand to the well-being of society uh, are never satisfied in a real-world economy. And so that's the way I put it, sort of uh, uh, more, uh, with a little bit more force by saying, you know, the visible hand just isn't there. Um, can I just briefly, before I let you go, turn to, well, relatively more parochial matters, because obviously we're, you know, we're a British magazine. And I'm, I mean, one of my colleagues, for instance, suggested I raised, he said, you know, inequality is worsening drastically in the States, but in the UK, it, at least the statistics that he seems to show that it's been more or less constant, you know, it hasn't grown since the, since the 80s, at least. Is that, is, is that your understanding of it? Uh no, my understanding is that in uh, most countries, uh, uh, most advanced countries around the world, uh, inequality has increased. Uh, there are a few countries where the increase has been uh, more limited. Uh, France is an example. Uh, there are a few countries in uh, the emerging markets where uh, for a long period, inequality actually decreased. The Bolivia and Brazil were were two of those examples. But in most of the discussions that I've seen, uh, the UK is uh, uh, put there with the Anglo-American model, where there has been, by most metrics, uh, an increase in uh, in inequality. Um, you know. When you're at the extremes of inequality in the United States, uh, the numbers glare at you and you just can't uh, engage in any real dispute. Uh, when it's not a quite so extreme, there are many different measures and in one or the other measure, uh, things might look a little bit better. But uh, overall, uh, the UK uh, is clearly not uh, one of the top performers. Uh, in in terms of inequality. Now, um, when it comes to our little local difficulty with Brexit, where do you stand on that? Because I know some people on the left believe that European integration is itself a kind of neoliberal conspiracy. Um, and, well, a lot on the right here think it's a, you know, it is, you know, a wealth constraining sort of socialist over bureaucratic gin up. I mean, what... You know, do you think Brexit's got anything to be said for it? Well, let me say, you know, first, the European project was not a neoliberal conspiracy. It was really a, a project that was conceived after the end of World War II uh, to try to ensure that uh, another uh, set of episodes like World War One and World War Two would not occur again. And it was based on a well-founded economic belief that... Uh, forms of economic integration could lead to greater prosperity. What happened, unfortunately, is many of the details were then uh, formulated under uh, neoliberal ideas. And so you wound up with uh, the notion that if only government kept debt and deficits low and inflation low, picking out numbers uh, out of thin air like uh, a 2% inflation rate, 3% deficit, 60% debt ratio to GDP. Those numbers just picked out of thin air. But those neoliberal ideas saying 
as long as government doesn't mess up thing, the market will ensure strong and stable growth and efficient uh, economic efficiency. That was just wrong. And so many of the rules within your, uh, guiding European economic policy were shaped by neoliberalism. Uh, and you have a European Central Bank uh, focusing just on inflation, uh, ignoring uh, employment, uh, growth, financial stability, and the consequences have really been dire uh, for Europe as a whole. Uh, you know, with Trichet raising the interest rates in 2011, just when he should have been lowering uh, interest rates. But the UK was not part of the euro. And the, the, the euro was the worst part of that neoliberalism that afflicted, uh, afflicts much uh, of Europe. And so in many ways, uh, uh, the UK uh, uh, had a lot more uh, freedom to ma manage its own economic policy. Uh, the, one of the interesting things about the debate and the referendum over uh, Brexit was that at the time, as I saw the referendum, uh, the discussion did not uh, focus on some of the most important issues that have now moved to the fore, uh, in particular the, the Irish question. Uh, the question of do you have a boundary between Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland or between Ireland and, 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 and Great Britain. And uh, that has turned out to be one of the major stumbling blocks. Um, the, there are other difficulties that were not correctly, uh, adequately envisioned, which is uh, how do you work out an agreement uh, between uh, uh, the rest of the EU and uh, the UK? And that's turned out to be extraordinarily difficult with with uh, 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 the kinds of proposals being made now being viewed as unacceptable by uh, the hard Brexiters. So my view on this is that almost surely if the people of the UK knew at the time of the last referendum how difficult uh, Brexit would be at least enough of them would have changed their mind that uh, it, was a, it, it is unlikely that they would have voted for Brexit. Hard to tell, but at least uh, that's a, a reasonable guess. Finally, I just want to ask, your book, you know, it, you don't shy away from, you know, leaving what we usually think of as quite dry economic stuff and just moving into a kind of moral sphere of, you know, you say very explicitly towards the end, you know, there is a kind of battle of good versus evil. Do you see, I mean, does your apprehension of the economic setup give you, you know, a particular slant on human nature? I mean, I was interested that early on you describe, you say, you know, greedy bankers become more greedy because they're bankers, you know. Um, I mean, do you see a sort of Hobbesian view of people as basically selfish and... You know. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, it's it's a little, a little, a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, there's been a lot of work in behavioral economics, uh, of which I've uh, been part, 
uh, showing that the assumptions in standard economics that people are born with well-defined preferences uh, uh, is wrong. That uh, the economy uh, is shaped by individuals, obviously, but the economy shapes individuals. It's a two-way interaction. And uh, if you have a materialistic, short-term economy, uh, you're going to wind up with more materialistic, short-term individuals. Uh, if you have uh, a society, an economy where uh, cooperation, uh, where there are more cooperatives, uh, where uh, other values uh, uh, get more reflected, people are going to uh, echo that. And you're going to find out, uh, wind up with individuals uh, who are more cooperative. So one of the points that I uh, try to bring out is it's not uh, probably a surprise that we've seen in the United States so many people in so many areas exhibiting such moral turpitude. Um, you know, it's not an isolated banker who is a, uh, exhibits bad behavior. Uh, you know, as we look across the banks uh, uh, from Wells Fargo, countrywide, you know, one after another, they engaged in market manipulation, predatory, pri uh, predatory lending, abusive credit card practices. You know, the list goes on and on. Every day in the newspaper, there's a, some new scandal uh, that, that uh, you know, some, some new aspect of fraud that has been detected. Um, and it's just not, I don't want to just blame the finance industry. We have a drug industry um, uh, where uh, drug companies were willing to uh, push addictive drugs, drugs they knew were addictive, uh, resulting in the opioid crisis with some 200,000 Americans uh, dying just to increase a little bit of profits. You know, th that is an extreme of moral, what I would call moral turpitude. We have, uh, and it's not just in America, in Europe you have uh, Volkswagen, you know, everybody recognizes the dangers of of global warming, the importance of clean air, and yet uh, they're cheating, Volkswagen cheats uh, on the tests uh, for uh, diesel emissions. Well, uh, how do we explain that so many leaders of so many important enterprises exhibit this moral turpitude? Is this natural? And part of the argument is no, it's not. Uh, it, our economy has created, or has helped create, people uh, like this. And so part of my hope is that by reshaping the market economy, we'll reshape who we are, and uh, progressive capitalism will create not only a more dynamic economy and an economy with more shared prosperity, but also a society that is more reflective of the kind of aspirations that we would like, we would like our children to be like. Professor Sniglitz, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.
You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.